A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I'll be talking to Anusha Kalian and George Eaton about the surprisingly upbeat mood at Tory party conference. Ian Steadman and I will be tackling the new ways that copyright law is being enforced on the internet, and Philip Moore will talk to Caroline Crampton about the last work of the late composer John Taverner. Well, we've nearly made it to the end of conference season, only Lib Dems to go, and I'm joined by George Eaton, our political editor, and Anusha Kaley, the acting editor of the Staggers, who've just returned from Birmingham, where the Tories held their conference. George, you've written in your column this week that David Cameron was quite chipper. In fact, the whole Tory party conference were quite chipper. When they're four points behind it in the polls, why are they so happy? They were happy partly because of how badly Labour went. That confirmed their belief that... Uh, they're in better shape than the opposition, that they deserve to win the election and that they can win the election. Um, Of course, the consideration they then come to is this isn't just a straight fight with Labour, that as Cameron himself conceded, he's fighting a war on two fronts, uh, the second being against UKIP. Um, But given the circumstances in which the conference started with the reckless defection and the resignation of Brooks Newmark, it was remarkably successful. And Cameron whose speech went very well yesterday, I thought it was probably the best he'd given as Conservative leader, benefited from actually holding quite a lot of policy back. So his previous two conference addresses were very light on policy. And yesterday he had uh, huge amounts of uh, policy to, to, to put out there. And it's quite significant that he felt the need to make such a big move on tax and on other issues to try and check uh, Labour's advantage. So the two big moves on tax are raising the personal allowance, which has already gone up to 10,000. It would be hopefully to make that go up to 12,500, yeah. which Anusha, you, you were saying that the Lib Dems are a bit miffed about because they had to mm. lobby quite hard for it to be raised to 10,000. And yeah. now the Tories have kind of owned that and big footed it by making it look like this, this is their thing. And the second thing is to reduce this thing we have called fiscal drag, where more and more people are getting sucked into the top tax bans. So as I understand at the top, the rate that you will start paying 40p tax on is going to go up quite significantly by about £9,000. £250,000, yes. Yeah, although that will happen, be eroded by inflation, and in some yeah. ways it's playing a game of catch-up anyway. But you were saying, so this is a kind of, they've been stealing Lib Dem policies to placate UKIP. That's mm. the state of politics today. Yeah, it's a sign of how weird uh, the political landscape is now, because, um, as you said, taking people out of, uh, more people out of the um, uh, the personal tax allowance is a Lib Dem policy, and it's something that they will be championing at their at their conference. But Labour have uh, but the Tories have stolen that that from them, um, and also um, 
one of UKIP's ideas during their conference was to um, scrap income tax on minimum wage, which is basically what Cameron was doing with this tax cut. So yes, he's using a UKIP idea with a Lib Dem policy. The other thing I thought was really interesting, George, was this idea of the NHS. So Cameron in his speech got very misty-eyed and said, you know, Labour attacked me across the NHS, but my disabled son used the NHS. I was so proud of it. Does this is this a terrible harbinger of a of a campaign that is going to be absolutely fixated on the NHS? Well, it's quite clear that Labour intend to make it one of their key themes, um, and quite rightly because it's the issue in which they enjoy the biggest lead. And Cameron famously once described it as his political priorities. He said, Tony Blair uh, said, my priorities are education, education, education. I can do it in three letters, NHS. But it's an issue about which the Tories have had uh, a lot less to say recently. In fact, Linton Crosby has even told ministers, don't speak about it too much because it's a Labour issue and that they, they benefit. But what I think Cameron was trying to do with that quite powerful intervention in his speech was to neutralise the issue, to say, look, I care about the NHS too, don't, don't attack me. Um, there, there, there are some who, um, who think that's you know, admirable and, and sincere, but there are others who I think are almost regarded as a form of emotional blackmail and actually, uh, and also doubt that um, Cameron's defence of his uh, commitment to the NHS will wash with voters who are finding it impossible to get a GP appointment or have had to wait for weeks in, uh, for an operation. They're going to be wheeling out those posters as well about no more, I pledge no more top-down reorganisations of the NHS, which obviously then yeah. no government can resist, it seems, a top-down reorganisation of the NHS. So moving into the upcoming conference, how do you, do you think there'll be a similar mood of optimism among Lib Dems? Because they're in a very strange position too, where they face, you know, they're at single figures in the polls. But it's entirely possible they could once again hold the balance of power. So are they going to be similarly? I mean, they have been extremely chipper throughout the mm. whole parliament. I mean, that's what's really surprising, how united the Lib Dems have remained, with the exception of the uh, the brief but actually sort of pathetic coup attempts mm. against against Clegg. You haven't had any defections, for instance, from, from, from the Lib Dems. And you're right to say that is their big hope, that we they may go down to as few as 30 MPs from their current level of, of 56, but they'll still hold the balance of power. They can still get back into government um, and there's some in the party who obviously look forward to the prospect of potentially governing with Labour because uh, they could get more of their, their policies introduced and would also establish them as their natural coalition partner. We can govern with the left as well as the right. There are also some, of course, who, who dread the possibility of, of governing with Labour for, for various reasons, I mean, partly because um, they, they are to the right of Labour on, on, some, on some issues now, but also because they, they looked at the Blair and Brown years and the briefing and actually imagined that governing with Labour would be, um, would be quite nasty. Yes, I can imagine that, yeah, they wouldn't be, it wouldn't be all sweetness and light in the Lib Lab coalition. Um, and to move on to UKIP, they had an extraordinary conference, uh, Anusha, at Doncaster Racecourse, where mm. they, again, they did some very interesting things, I thought, where they sort of floated very left-wing policies, the so-called this idea of the WAG tax, where you get taxed a higher rate of VAT on luxury cars and handbags and shoes mm. and things like that, quickly squashed by Nigel Farage. Now, they're in the happy position that the Lib Dems want in, where they can kind of throw together a slightly mishmashed but are, do you think they will move now to try to get more populist and more left-wing policies rather than selling themselves explicitly as a libertarian-style party? I think that would be a good move to them because I think the people who they are wooing on the right, they've pretty much won them now. Um, so it's quite a good idea to fight this other front um, to get these Labour voters in. And actually, I think um, 
that I mean, there were, Tim Wigmore, one of our reporters who was at the conference, he was reporting from the from the fringe that there are people saying they want to renationalise the railways and that kind of thing. Well, um, as George will tell you, sixty six percent, isn't it, of the British yeah, public want so, to do the same? Yeah, so it's not necessarily a left and right wing thing. It's just things that are popular with with the public. And they've been the slightly luxurious position, as the Lib Dems once were, of never having to worry about yeah. how you actually turn that into a programme for government. So well, the other big thing that's coming up in the next couple of weeks are two big by-elections. So we have a by-election in Clacton caused by the defection of Douglas Carswell from the Tories to UKIP. George, he's expected to hang on there, isn't he? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. So there were a lot of polls which came out almost just days after his defection, showing him, um, I think, 30, uh, 40 points ahead um, he's got a, a very strong reputation in the seats. Um, it was a seat that UKIP um, were in a strong position to win. Anyway, so the Conservatives have effectively conceded that in advance to him. And there are also some who are, who are always reluctant to campaign against him because Carswell is a figure who is well-liked and well-respected. Mark Reckless is quite a different case, though. So this is the other by-election, which is in Rochester and Strood in Kent. And it's looking less hopeful for him. It is. And actually, the Tories now regard it as essential to win that by-election, um, to act as a firebreaker in UKIP, to halt their momentum. So one cabinet minister told me, you know, we have to cut them off the legs. It's an opportunity to turn a, turn a crisis to our benefits and to signal to other would-be defectors, uh, you're not guaranteed to win if you stand under, under UKIP colours. Which is an interesting point because there were all kinds of whispers throughout Tory conference of another big defector being about someone was going to spoil Cameron's speech. And in the end, it happened that there was a donor who defected and then gave even more money when it turned out that because he was piqued that William Hay didn't know who he was. Plus one of Boris's old deputy mayors who'd previously been expelled from the Conservative Party moved there to UKIP. But there wasn't another Douglas Carswell level hmm. shock, was there? Yes, exactly. And so everyone, uh, those reporters who went to Bristol yesterday, straight from Birmingham for the uh, surprise UKIP press conference, were quite disappointed when it turned out that the big announcement was that a donor was giving them £1 million rather than 100000 And the speculation now is obviously, was there a third defector lined up who got cold feet? Perhaps they were won over by Cameron's conference speech. Perhaps they've seen the Tory party declare total war and Mark Reckless, uh, trash his reputation all week and thought, mm, you know what, I'm not actually sure I, I want to be taken out in that way. There is a big calculation to be made if you feel, if you are a Tory and you feel much more optimistic about being in government this time next year, that there is still the tiniest glimmer of, of you having some some influence or maybe getting a junior role. Whereas if you go to UKIP, obviously you will be a big fish in a small pond, mm. but you're unlikely to hold a ministerial position. <laughs> I think that's not really something we can all foresee. Um, well, we'll reconvene once we've survived Lib Dem conference, but for the moment it's a thank you to George and Anoush. Yesterday, copyright laws changed, which means that we can now do more parodies. I'm joined by Ian Steadman, who, uh, for some reason, I don't know why this is your thing. I guess it's tech, isn't it's it? Tech. It's tech. It's tech, right? Yeah. yeah. It's tech. Um, to talk about... So, t- first of all, tell me exactly what's changed. Okay. Um, well, obviously, copyright is all about stopping people doing stuff with things that you create without your permission. Um, but copyright law usually has exceptions for that, for stuff like... Um, Parody, for instance, or quoting someone like you're writing a newspaper article, you should be able to quote someone and not get sued for it. And that's all kind of common sense. But often the law lags behind on how people actually use stuff. And um, 
this is one of the few things that I'll give credit to the, the coalition government for, but when they came in in 2010, they commissioned a review of intellectual property laws because it was out of date and stuff. Mm. Um, people do things like, did you, until yesterday, it was illegal to rip a CD from a CD, music from a CD to your computer and then put it on an MP3 player. Technically, it was illegal. Like, that wasn't allowed as an exception in copyright law. So now that that's law. legal, I can say that I spend a large part yeah. of the 90s. You, you are now <laughs> allowed to uh, record music onto a cassette for listening in the car if you want to. <laughs> Thank God that's yes. coming. Because um, it's, it's mini-disc? Mini-disc, yeah. DVD, CD, uh, HD DVD, if you can still find one of those around. Um, but there's, there's a whole Internet. raft of things that um, they found from this review that were totally out of date. One of which was that um, it was technically not allowed to do stuff like take a clip from a TV show or a movie and use it as part of a larger critique or parody. Or, like, say, um, you're now allowed to do a parody song, like Weird Al Yankovic style, where you sing essentially the same song with different lyrics to take the piss out of someone. That's now legal under British law. So it's one of those law. things where presumably they weren't hauling people up in front of the beach no. going, your version of... A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. You know, Lady Gaga's telephone where you've made it about <laughs> British telecom. <laughs> that would be a... Te- this is why I don't write oh, parody scathing songs. scathing satire, that, yeah. yeah. It's, it's technically legal, but now it is explicitly fine. Yeah, there's this new concept. Um, in America, um, they have this idea of fair use, and what's been brought in here is, is called fair dealing, which is that a exception to copyright for parody and pastiche is okay as long as it's something that a reasonable and honest person would be expected to do in the same situation which is one of those legal definitions that you often get where um it's like defining pornography under the law it's like no one actually does it but they know it when they see it yeah um so that's that's now okay you can you can now mock people mercilessly um there's that popular rap of with the cassette boy rap David Cameron thing that's going around the internet at the at the moment. So technically, Nick Clegg could have sued the people who auto-tuned his I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so, so sorry. I don't know if he held copyright on that. I suppose it wasn't. He I didn't mean, own it necessarily. Did, I guess but, the news channel probably owned it, but it was... But again, it's like one of the things where, in practice, no one would... He wouldn't do that because a politician sat... So that would be that the be worst idea destroy, ever. Destroy your career. Um, and also, it's, it's just... It wasn't in the interest of anyone to really pursue individual... Um, people uh, violating the law in that way. But there are also lots of other things that have been brought in. Um, this is the second half. There was a first half that was brought in on the 1st of June. Um, and the stuff that's been brought in is really useful. Like, now it's okay if there's a version of a film or TV show that doesn't have subtitles. You can't legally buy it with subtitles. People who need subtitles to watch stuff are now allowed to create subtitles for films Which and publish them online. A huge point for accessibility. I yeah. guess the same thing with those hearing described... Um, versions of soundtracks and stuff like that that yeah. you, you would probably yeah I don't think they were hauling you know, deaf people up in court no. but no, it's good to have that officially recognised yeah it, it's essentially these are just reforms to reflect the way that people actually use music but of course the hilarious thing with things like mini discs is it's so out of date when it comes to ripping CDs and yes stuff. you can like, now put it on your phonogram yeah it's, it's, it's kind of a bit bit late now um but, but the one yeah. that they haven't done which i think is is really tricky is they haven't they still haven't overturned the ban in using parliamentary footage no. in a satirical con- uh, context so this is something i wrote about in 2011 people constantly say well, the daily show in america is really great or now john oliver's new show um which does a lot of the same techniques 
And they say, well, this is, you know, they talk, they show huge amounts of C-SPAN on that. Um, yeah. If you ever watch the, the, the US version, they just sit and play a Senate committee hearing and then talk through it. Yep. And there was this ridiculous situation a couple of years ago where they, even the shortened roundup version that they show, the global edition on, on that they show on More 4 or whatever it is, they wouldn't show because John Stewart was talking about David Cameron at Prime Minister's Questions responding to the hacking situation. He was actually being really complimentary about him. He was saying that, you know, in America, they would never have just people just shouting, you're a, you know, <laughs> you just answer the question, you know, um, and sort of all the things that Dennis Skinner says to people in the chamber. And Cameron dealt with it you know, with real aplomb, they would never let their president do that or even their Senate majority leader. Um, but that couldn't, they couldn't show that because the whole programme is deemed to be satirical. And it was something that really hobbled 10 o'clock live. Yes, They yes, couldn't do any coverage so. of politics. I mean, it's less of an issue now that so much of politics happens outside the chamber, but it's still a real anomaly that actually, I don't think anyone could make the argument that you don't learn a huge amount from something like The Daily Show. You know, I was oh, incredibly well informed <laughs> about American politics when I used to watch it regularly. Yeah. There was there was a study recently that, which found that um, it assessed the, for people, Americans watching the news, basically. They asked them what shows they watched and they tested them on current affairs to see how informed they were and daily show viewers were the most informed well it's the thing yeah. i was like i was quite well up on sort of minor random politicians in that they had a guy in the republican party had the most ridiculous name oh i've even forgotten it it was so ludicrous reince priebus and they were obsessed <laughs> with this guy called reince priebus it is a really crazy name but um but yeah we could do something similar here if only Absolutely. you were allowed to yeah, to yeah that's 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 going to be one of the next waves of uh copyright activism basically um all the copyright activists were delighted with these changes still pointing out that that just really obvious um bar to satire is still there yeah and it's not really like that's the thing that's preserving the dignity of our politicians tragically <laughs> no I, they do a pretty bad job of doing <laughs> doing that um and on that note i'll say thank you very much ian My name's Philip Morton and I'm joined by Caroline Crampton to talk about John Taverner, the composer who died at the end of last year and has um, his final work is being performed at the Barbican at the minute. So the work is called Flood of Beauty and what is it? Well, predictably for John Taverner, if you know any of his work, he was relatively popular. He was very interested in other world religions than Christianity. He himself was converted to Orthodox, Russian Orthodox Christianity in the 70s. But since then, he, he wrote music that encompassed all different faiths. And this one is particularly focused on Hinduism. And it's a setting of a very, very long Sanskrit poem about uh, a goddess called Devi, who is the kind of female heart of the universe, I suppose, the kind of eternal feminine. Um, so it's this very, very long poem. And he's written... He wrote, he wrote this music, I think, in 2007, but it had never been performed, and then he died last year, and so the Barbican have now mounted it as a kind of tribute to him. Um, and it's a, it's a vast work. It's sort of an hour and 40 minutes, I think, straight through. Uh, it requires all kinds of musicians and singers, um, a whole orchestra, some Indian musicians, um, several choirs, a string quartet, a brass ensemble, all these different things. And it creates this kind of wash, immersive wash of sound that you're supposed to sit in the centre of, um, thus to mimic the subject of the poem. How does it compare to the rest of his work? I mean, it's the more choral end of stuff that I'm 
uh, familiar with, and I think that probably a lot of people recognise. Um, but I mean, so how, how, you know, is it is it something totally new? Or? Um, it's not that new, although. The mo- his, you're quite right. His most popular works are, um, I think, two pieces. One, Song for Athene, which was a choral thing that was sung at Princess Diana's funeral. Mm. And the other is his setting of William Blake's poem, The Lamb, yeah. which is played on the radio an awful lot, especially yeah, Classic FM, <laughs> um, which are, I think, what makes them so popular and so enduring is their simplicity because they're simple words, simple musical lines brought together in a very kind of open harmony. Um, this is not like that. If you... If you've dug a bit deeper into his repertoire and you've um, come across things like The Veil of the Temple from 2003, I think this is, obviously it's both choral and instrumental, it's quite noisy and chaotic, there's lots of things happening at the same time, Uh, even this piece is written in five cycles, which I think, I think, although I'm no expert on Sanskrit poetry, reflects the cycles of the poem. And at the end of each cycle, this great big kind of crashing cacophony comes down to a single cello solo, really, really beautiful line. Um, But while the cellist is playing, someone's kind of bonging gongs in the background. So you're never entirely left with that purity of line that we know from his more popular pieces. Can you, for those who don't know Tavner all that well, can you say something a little bit about his life? Because I remember reading the... um... The obituaries last year when he died, uh, you, you wrote a piece, I remember, about seeing the veil of the temple in this sort of, wasn't it, overnight kind of performance. Mm, yeah. There's, it seems to be, well, two things. One is that his own life and, and his, his battle with ill health was, was um, is quite striking. It's amazing he was able to be as productive as he mm. was. Uh, but also that the, some of the, the staging of, of, uh, of performances of his sound, sound quite radical and quite interesting as well. Yes, yeah, so you're quite right. His, um, I've... The, na- uh, the name of the disease completely eludes me. It's quite, it's quite rare. He was diagnosed with this condition. I think it's an immuno condition, relatively young. And he was not expect- expected to live as long as he did, nor live as full a life as he did. And he had a stroke very mm. young. And then I think um, later on in, into middle age, he had a very serious heart attack that, he, that took him several years to recover from. So he was, I think his, his widow um, gave an interview last, last week in The Telegraph, I think, where she kind of said that death was never far from his mind in every aspect, both personally and sort of musically. He, he was always very aware of the kind of precariousness of being. Um, but on your second point about the staging of his pieces, it's clearly something that he cared very much about. Um, the Veil of the Temple, which you allude to, is a, I think it takes seven hours to perform. It was, and it's this kind of hybrid oratorio and vigil. Vigil from the Russian Orthodox tradition of sort of vespers and meditative music. And then oratorio from the more sort of classical western tradition of telling a, a an epic story through song think of Handel's Messiah or something like that and the story that he chose to tell there was the story of the Knights Templar and the story of the temple in Jerusalem and the premiere of this was held in 2003 at the temple church mm. in London the burial resting place of the Knights Templar um, and it, it was held sort of over all night over the night and it was um, intended and indeed it was in fact the case that the kind of final cycle should coincide with the dawn with the light kind of coming through the church windows um, to maximize the effect of the music that he'd written 
Something that um, I know Rowan Williams often talks about, a figure really interested in the Eastern Church, is its kind of meditative um, elements. You know, they talk about the Jesus prayer used in, um, you know, which is a simple repetition which takes you to some kind of transcendent state. Would you say that a lot of his music is aiming at some kind of trans- transcendence for the listener? Yes, absolutely. And you hear that a lot in this Flood of Beauty, this um, work that's just been performed now. Um, there's a lot of... Because uh, the way the Barbican have done it, obviously it's it's in a language that pretty much nobody speaks. So they they project a translation on the wall as it's in quite a nice, unobtrusive way in the sense that it's not like opera subtitles or surtitles. If you don't want to read it, if you just want to listen to music, it doesn't intrude on your eyeline. But, um, but if you are interested in what they're singing about, you can read it. I mean, and I will say some of it is quite kind of fruity there's a lot about how um the goddess's breasts are like elephant ears and uh, praising the crescents of her toenails and this kind of stuff but um there is also an awful lot of repetition of the same kind of words and the same kind of phrases and that's mirrored in the vocal lines that he wrote for those words the idea being that you're kind of comforted and lulled by this repetition into a point where you your mind rises above into something else and who wouldn't want that thanks very much carolyn You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Philip Morn. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.